Hi, everyone. Welcome to the MBA Insider Podcast. I am your host, Al D, and the author of MBA Insider. This podcast is for career-driven professionals looking for advice on how to grow their careers by leveraging the skills, experiences, and knowledge gained from an MBA degree. In each episode, I'll give you a look into the business school experience, along with practical tips, career advice, and real-life stories to help professionals grow their careers. Welcome to the MBA Insider Podcast. My name is Al D. I'm the host of the MBA Insider Podcast and the founder of MBAschool.com. Uh, today, I'm really excited because I have with me Paul Millard, who's the author of The Pathless Path and someone whose work I've actually read a lot of over the past year and a half or so. It's been really instrumental for me in terms of thinking about um, building MBA school as well as taking a, a new direction in my own career myself. And I'm excited because uh, we're recording this at the end of January and Paul just launched uh, his book. Um, he's actually been chronicling a little bit around the process of writing the book over the past year, but The Pathless Path is now uh, available uh, on Amazon. And we're going to talk today a little bit about Paul's journey as well as the book itself. Um, so Paul, thank you so much for being here. Uh, I'm really excited to have this conversation. As I mentioned, I've read a lot of your work over the past year and a half, um, and I'm sure you've heard this before, but it's been super helpful to me. And before we really dive into that work, uh, I forget where, maybe in a newsletter somewhere, but I, I read that you're a huge basketball fan, particularly in the NBA. I, I would love to, I always love starting with a warm-up question. So, so talk to me a little bit about who are some of your favorite players of all time? Oh, wow. That's hard. I mean, I grew up in the 90s watching basketball, yeah. early to mid-90s. So the easy Same. answer is Jordan. Yeah. Um, obsessed with like watching everything with him, but was a diehard Celtics fan. Uh all that. And then I'd probably say my favorite players are all UConn men's basketball players. I uh, grew up okay. watching and following the college team. People like Ray Allen, Danielle Marshall, yeah. um, yep. Khalid Alamin, Rip Hamilton. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that you Connecticut's a huge basketball state. Like they love the college teams. So yeah. it was a cool place to grow up. And that was probably one of my first big curiosities. Yeah, for sure. And you went to UConn as well. So I'm assuming you got to go to some some games over the years. Yeah, I think I went to 95% of the men's games and went to many women's games as well. So yeah, I mean, that was one of my goals in college just to live that up and enjoy it. Okay, great. Awesome. Well, uh, so let's dive in. So as I mentioned before, you're the author of The Pathless Path, as well as the writer of a newsletter called Boundless. And uh, before we talk about the book, I would love to just maybe just start with a little bit about you. So maybe you could offer up a story from your childhood that did deeply influence your first career decisions after you graduated from college. You know, talk to me a little bit about growing up and, and maybe an example from something that happened growing up that really helped you think about and frame uh, how you wanted to take your career after you graduated from, from UConn. I think my experience was unique for not having a lot of intense um, not a lot of tense uh, kind of like expectations growing up. It was a very family-centric life. And um, I think that influenced me because I didn't really have a roadmap for doing anything except like thinking about, oh, you go to school and get good grades so you can get a job. Right? A very like standard middle-class um, way of seeing the world. And I think, I was kind of like a blank canvas showing up in college and was suddenly surrounded by other high achievers for the first time. 
and started to desire uh, status and prestige and care about these things, care more about how I dress and how I look, how I sound, those kind of things, which are definitely like magnets to uh, insecure young man like I was. Sure. And so part of the where that question comes from is just um, thinking about just your your journey um, and the, some of the stops you made in your career. I know you spent a little bit of time at GE. I know you spent some time at McKinsey, some other places. And I just was curious more, just uh, it sounds like some of those things came about just from, as you mentioned, being in, you know in environments with other people who were very dri- driven by brand name companies or, you know, you know, places that most people would agree at the time were very um, great places to start your career. Uh, but I just had wasn't sure if that had come just from your own desire, just from what you learned growing up, or it sounds like maybe it was a little bit something of an acquired taste just from having been in, in some of those environments. Is that is that fair? I did an internship that for my freshman year at a manufacturing company, and I was just blown away by how boring it was and how little anything I did of consequence was. Uh, And I think from there awakened a desire to like keep searching for better options. Like there's got to be more than this. Like there's no way I'm like going to go just spend the rest of my life in a cubicle because everyone thinks, oh, this is what you're supposed to do. Um, So I bounced around at different internships. I eventually interned at GE and like, I like GE better than the first company, but then well, there I found out about consulting and I kept wanting to like go to better and better work environments. Um, so that was probably the driver. I think the underlying theme for me was it was just playing life as a game. I was not appreciating any sort of deeper pursuits for the sake of themselves. Like I was doing my best in classes, like I was, but like if I could get a A, with minimal effort, I wasn't going to spend any time learning anything more deeply. Sure. And I think a lot of people are like that. I mean, that was pretty normal um, when I was in school. Yeah. Well, I think it worked out at least to start off your career because, like you mentioned, you ended up at some great companies. And then eventually you went and got in your MBA and would love to maybe know just what was your journey like towards deciding you wanted to pursue an advanced degree and then going to business school at Sloan. So I did, I did like school a lot. I liked engineering in undergrad and I liked that it was very math focused and challenging and pushed me. Um, I never pushed myself too hard though in that area. And I think after a couple of years of working, I wanted to go back and do engineering again. So I was at, in consulting and a lot of people are going to MBA programs. So I used that as sort of a pathway to apply to the combined systems engineering and MBA program at MIT. My mindset at the time was I either get in and I go or I stay in consulting and then figure it out. I didn't want to just go get an MBA for the sake of it. I wanted to do kind of a hard, challenging combined uh, degree. And I think by that point, I was kind of realizing I missed being in school and probably had a lot of cool opportunities while there. And how was that experience at Sloan doing the, the dual degree program? I know you wrote a little bit about it in the book, but talk to me a little bit more about how your time was there, what you really invested your time in, what were your experience was like? It was great. I think it was my first taste of realizing I wanted to escape work. <laughs> like, I think full-time MBAs are the greatest excuse in the world 
where you can take two years off and not work and everyone's like, yes, you're doing the right thing. Uh, whereas, I mean, if you go work on your own and you make money and don't go into debt, people will be like, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? What is your plan? What is your next step? But if you go into $100,000 of debt and not work for two years at a business school, people are like, bravo, like, well, <laughs> well done. It doesn't really make any sense. Uh, so I love just getting the space to breathe again and think. And I didn't realize that would become a deeper drive for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was definitely starting to bubble up while I was in school. And I was trying to explore things out of my comfort zone for the first time and learning for the sake of learning and uh, experimenting with things. I didn't think I'd go back to consulting, but eventually I ended up in the second year basically just applying to consulting again because I hadn't come up with a better option. Yeah. So talk to me a little bit about that. And it, it sounds like I think you did go into consulting afterwards again, at least for a stint. What was it like to have come to that realization during your second year that you hadn't found another option and then you were diving back into something that you had already done. Were you feeling all right about that? Was that challenging to you? Was it just, this is just what it is? I think a lot of life is like this. If you don't put effort in, the easiest thing to do is do what you did yesterday. Yeah. Right. So I had worked in consulting. I was pretty good at it. And it was just the easiest option to continue doing that. Um, to change in a dramatic way would have taken a lot more effort. Really what it would have taken was introspection and like grappling with my insecurities and fears. Um, But I don't think I was ready to do that or didn't have the tools or didn't have the role models to do it back then. And alternative paths are not something people do out of business school. They might like go fund a company, but they'll do it under the security of like VC funding. Yeah. Um, or they're independently wealthy. I didn't find a lot of people that were like, yeah, I'm just going to like work on my own and freelance. Mm-hmm. Right, um, right, for sure. Well, and and also I think at least when, at least in many business schools, the the adage of you can only be what you can see, it, it still kind of applies. And mm-hmm. point, if, if you're not seeing a lot of other people who you're networking with or talking to kind of go down that path, you're not going to think about it. On the flip side of that, if you see people going into um, different area uh, functions or industries in, in droves, well, that I think that often will um, give you a mental model for what for what you can do as well. And I think it really must take someone who has deep conviction in the path they want to go in uh, to maybe do something that's a little bit different. Or maybe they're just inherently contrarian and are just going to be like, all right, well, I'm not going to do any of the things that everyone else is going to do. And I'm just going to do my own thing. I think I was a contrarian, but I didn't realize it. Right. I think I've always had this rebel streak of wanting to Mm -hmm. take a different approach, find my own way, being skeptical of what people say. Like when people, so I took a GRE right after college because I thought I was going to do an engineering master's. And people were like, man, nobody's going to take you seriously. Like, your scores aren't good enough. And I was like, ah, I don't know. I'll just apply with the GRE and like, I don't want to study for GMAT. And people are like, no, it's the wrong idea. You've got to apply to multiple schools. And I was just like, ah, figure it out. Yeah. Um, and it kind of worked its way out. I think, I mean, in school, I was like skipping classes and like going sailing instead. Like I was not like the prototypical good MBA student. Um, but I was really leaning into my curiosity and trying to do things my own way. But 
that being said, I was part of a ma- mass of people who are a very narrow personality type. I think the MBA types are very driven, but also very constrained in how much risk they're actually yeah. willing to take. These are not risk takers. I think people that go to like top business school programs are like risk mitigators. Um, and like, it's much more comfortable for a lot of those people to be like maximizing income. And I didn't realize how different it was because I was just part of that. Sure, sure. Well, and also too, I think, and I'm certainly guilty of this having been a, the host of a podcast about MBAs, but part of the value prop of getting an MBA degree is the ability to future-proof yourself, right? In terms of having some security, knowing that uh, you made an investment in something that's going to potentially help you, particularly during challenging job markets or allowing you to have the flexibility to pivot into something in case something doesn't work out. And I think it inherently is part of just the value prop you get with an education like that, which attracts, to your point, a certain right. uh, type of person. Yeah, it's like I want to make a lot of money and be successful but and not have to worry about my downside, which I think is great. Like sure. The downside to that is once you reach a certain level of success, and a lot of people reach this in certain industries, you can kind of always get a job. Right. Um, yes. Yes. And yeah. that blinds you to other possibilities of other paths. Right. And it took yeah. me a while to realize that's what I was doing. So after you graduated from Sloan, you, as you mentioned, you went back into consulting. Did Was that different at all from what you were doing before business school? in terms of how you viewed the work or, and also how you viewed work in general. And then as a follow-up to that, I know at some point, as you've written about in your newsletter and, and in also in your book, you also had um, a kind of a medical condition that kind of, I think, kind of transformed you. So could you maybe talk a little bit about that as well? Yeah, so my first, my first job was working for a company called A-Connect. We staffed independent consultants and I also worked as a consultant. So got to like run a staffing business of freelance gig workers and also work on those projects as an internal consultant. So it's very unique, very different, much more freedom when you're on projects than it was at the big firms. Uh, so that was my first exposure to gig workers who were working different ways and structuring their life different. And yeah, that experience was when I started uh, getting sick with Lyme disease after grad school. And that was just a rough experience for a couple of years. And that decentered work for me, I became, okay, I'm this successful person. Now I'm actually just trying to get back to health. And I think that's when I started asking deeper questions for the first time. Could you talk a little bit more about what, what are some examples of those deeper questions? What, what came, what came up as a result of that? Well, sitting in my bed, like just struggling and not feeling well physically in pain and psychologically in pain. Um, going without a paycheck, like I was on unpaid leave. Uh, I still had my health care, uh, but um, unpaid leave. And I was just living on my own, like burning into my savings. I only had like three or four months of savings at some point. And just like thinking about like, who am I? Am, am I a worker? Like, I'm so desperate to get this identity back. Like, my whole idea at the beginning was uh, I'll just recover and become, like, resume my path. And then it was just like a year 
a year and a half of really going through stuff and not getting better, going from doctor to doctor, eventually going back part-time, but not really all in on my work. And just like, I, I don't, I'm not a worker, but I don't know who I am. Right. And so those questions just floating around start making you look at life a little different. And that's kind of what started happening to me. I thank you for sharing that. And I can see how the, uh, such a experience like that would make you to think more deeply about, you know, some of those questions. Uh, what point did you realize that it was time for you to leave, you know, full-time work and, and, and exit into kind of exploring other options? It emerged slowly. I think after I recovered from being sick, I had this sort of exploratory rebel side. I started writing more. Um, I started doing like experiments with career coaching. I created a resume online course, just dabbling with all these things. And podcasts were happening at the time. So I was finding inspiration from people taking different paths. Is really a slow bubbling of different ideas and my imagination, like very slow, took a few years. Um, and I think at some point I just thought well, maybe I should try like the freelancing path that had always been in the back of my head after working with those gig workers. And it was floating around, but I, I never really took action on it. I kind of said like, yeah, I want to do that eventually. But it really took uh, my last job, which is an experience of kind of stumbling into burnout over a very slow um, period and then becoming so disconnected from what I claimed to care about in my career and what I was actually spending my time worrying about and fighting for. So yeah, it was a series of years. And I think one of the themes in my book is fighting against this idea that people take bold leaps. I don't think I took a bold leap. I think I did a series of a hundred little things over like five years that were slow, confusing, frustrating, exciting. Um, and then small bits of wisdom popped out at random points. And then paths just sort of emerge. And at some point, you do need to make that decision. I quit. I'm leaving. Um, but it's not. It's only really obvious upon reflection. I definitely can relate to that just from my own personal lived experience. And as some listeners will know, I, I left the corporate world uh, in last August 2021. And it's interesting when, when I left, people would ask me, did you know you were always going to do this? Did this just happen? What was your experience? And similar to what you're saying, and with the benefit of hindsight, I can point to a bunch of different things over the years that when you add them up, it kind of seems like it's a no-brainer. It's a bunch of small things, but when you add them up, you can see that it's a no-brainer. But did I have the intention of yeah. executing A, B, C, D, E, F, G and having it look like that? Uh, no, no. Um, but I do think, and maybe this is what you were getting at, and particularly in terms of when you had to start thinking about these deeper questions, when you start to have a greater self-awareness and you start paying attention and start being intentional about your thoughts, things, you just begin to notice things. And, yeah. and that's when the dots maybe start to connect. And I think sometimes that's where sometimes we look at other people and say, oh, they have it, they have it all figured out. It's like, okay, they did, but only because... Oh, they've been being intentional and thinking about it, not because they were doing it on purpose, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, you started the podcast when five years ago or so. 
I started the blog about seven years ago and I started okay. a podcast about two years ago, but, but yeah, I mean, in, in did, for context too. Yeah. For, for did the you start those to, with the intention of quitting your job or just your no. curiosity? To curiosity, absolute curiosity yeah. and a little bit of curiosity and also to solve a problem that I had for myself. Yeah, and this, this yeah. is what happens over and over again, right? Right, right. People follow their curiosity and they learn surprising things through it. And then they start imagining new possibilities because of that. Right. And then, um, and this is why I think creative activity is one of the most uh, transformative things anyone can do. Totally. I, I couldn't agree more. And I just, even in my time so far, even though it's only been short, just having more time uh, to do creative activity has as a result of that has spurred even more ideas and more opportunities. And many of these things I never could have imagined um, in my prior life because I just didn't have as much, I didn't have as much time for that. So I, I definitely agree. Okay. So I want to uh, ask you uh, one more thing just about uh, kind of this transition and journey towards the, this pathless path. So at some point, I think, um, and, and I know you've, you're, you're back now in the United States, but at some point uh, originally, uh, you decided to take a trip, I think, to Europe, and that eventually kind of kicked off you living this digital nomad life. At what, you know, what was that kind of experience like? Just traveling around. I know you made a bunch of different stops. You met a lot of different people, and just that general notion of being exposed to. I presume a lot of these people were much different than the people you were sitting with in cubicles mm -hmm. every day in your old job. But what kind of influence did that have in terms of pushing you in this new direction? Yeah, I don't know if they influenced me as much as I was gravitated to those scenes and environments. Mm -hmm. Sure. Yep. When I left my job, it was just, I wanted to escape. I wanted breathing room and I wanted to just work as a freelancer and do what I was doing, but less, lighter, mm -hmm. less less intense, less bullshit. Um, along the way, I found, I stumbled into like a little more space in my life. And I think every time I stepped into more space in my life, um, I just became more curious about what if I kept leaning into this? What if, what if I didn't start with the assumption that the most important thing to do in my life is to make more money? Mm, yeah. Right. Or yeah. that I need to work every day. Right. Um, and now some people might think that's crazy, but um, I was aggressively like cutting my cost of living and um, making sure I was making like very pragmatic decisions. So I'd work really hard for freelancing for a few months and then just try to live very frugally, not spend very much money. Um, and of course, easier because I was young and single, but I was challenging a lot of different um stereotypes. When I moved to Boston a few months after quitting my job in New York, I moved in with four other people who were in their early 20s. We had one bathroom. I paid $700 a rent, lived in Davis Square in Boston, and it was awesome. I loved it. Uh, I had intellectual conversation. Our house was like fine. It was kind of run down, um, kind of annoying to have one bathroom, but I had time flexibility. It didn't matter. I wasn't in a rush in the morning. Um, I spent a lot of time walking around, meeting up with friends, um, and I was 32 and the script in my head still was saying, well, you're a, you're supposed to be a successful man. Um, 
no person is going to take you seriously if you're living with roommates. You should have your own place, right? And this is when I started transcending these default scripts. And every test I did, I just remained happy or if not happier because I realized the value of my time and life force and life energy. Um, I had incredibly undervalued it. So I started to realize I'm just so willing to live on so little to protect that. And what would happen if I protected that and let that emerge and grow over a number of years? And that's what kind of led me to like, okay, what if I go travel with that space? What does that feel like? Okay, now I traveled and I'm doing work remotely abroad. What would it look like if I did that for three months instead of one month? Mm -hmm. Um, And it all just kind of emerged. So I really like what you said about challenging some of these default scripts and these and these things that you grew up with or that you've like, you've grown with over the years. And hearing you talk about it, I, I certainly understand kind of the thought process behind it. But objectively, it sounds like it can be a pretty daunting thing to do. It's not necessarily something that is for the faint of heart. And I'm just wondering if you could maybe talk a little bit more about just the intentional process of, of doing that, if that exists, or like how how that even works, because it's uh, as someone who has done some of this myself, it's not, it's not a walk in the park to say the least. Yeah. It's if you want to grapple with your inner like psychology and insecurities and fears, embracing an unconventional path is the fast track to it. And I think I valued that learning Mm -hmm. that discomfort. I had a sense that if I just coasted through life on easy mode, I would end up without much like resilience as an adult, um, not very happy with myself. So I think it was a hunger for growth and discomfort and change, um, a boredom with the people around me and the environments I was around in New York. It's like everyone just cared about like nice restaurants and like nice vacations and the three or four weeks they had off from work every year. It's like, gotta be more. <laughs> um, yeah. So I don't think I expected what I was getting into. When I quit my job, it was instantly just terrified of like, oh my God, I need to make money. I feel so like scared. Um, but you also realize, oh, you can react to that and just try hard and try new stuff and do stuff outside of your comfort zone and try to try to do consulting, even though you've never done that on your own. And it's really hard. Um, and I just valued the learning along the way. Um, so now... Do I still have insecurities about the future? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Um, do I worry about money? Yeah. All the time. But they're like micro existential crises that occur along the way and I can laugh at them now because I know what right. the trade-offs are. I know how I value my time in my life and I know what matters to me. So something you've, you've read about in the book and I know you've tweeted about and written about before is the concept of uh, infinite versus uh, finite games. And mm. I just would love for you to maybe share a little bit more about that and how being able to unwind some of the default scripts maybe ties ties into that. Yeah, so I, I think the, a big shift for me was discovering Agnes Callard's idea of aspiration. And this is a journey of uh, seeking to become a different version of yourself, right? A, a lot of people aspire to this. Some people call it the ideal self. Um, it's Basically, it can be summed down to at the end of our lives, if we don't move towards this version or of ourselves, will we regret it? These lead to the biggest regrets. 
And I think the thing that clicked for me with Agnes Kellard's explanation was you could uh, aspire to things and not actually know what you'll learn or value along the way. Oppose that to what I was doing earlier in my career. I was trying to get great high grades because I valued high grades. Um, and I wasn't leaving space open to learn things or dive deep into a learning journey along the way. I had a very narrow conception of like goal process, know what I value. Um, whereas like this journey I'm on now, like I don't actually know what I'll learn along the way. Um, which is disorienting, uh, but it's fun. And the only choice so you can do one of two things. One is what I call a hustle trap, which is like desperately crave a new identity. So you leave um, your job and you say, I'm a freelance consultant now. I'm going to be a successful freelance consultant. I'm going to make $200,000. I'm going to like have all these clients and do this specific type of work. Or I'm going to be a successful creator. That's a new one. Um, I'm going to build an online course and do this and like, you're not really leaving over in space. You're seeking an identity and a safe, a safe like glow. I think what, where most people end up either after burning out early on in a journey or through their own experiments is that they need to find work they want to keep doing. Um, so you can do that by just continuing to test and try stuff. And for over five years, I've slowly figured out what is the work I like doing. I love mentoring and coaching people. I love teaching. I love facilitating uh, workshops. I love uh, writing. Um, I also love non-working. Like, I, I like creative work. And that also occurs after breaks, right, in creating space in my life. So that's the game I want to keep playing. Yeah. I have, I have no, I don't care what the outcomes are or like I, I do want to be able to like fund my life but like I don't need to be anything I don't need to be on a cover I don't need to win an award I don't need to reach a certain dollar amount I just need to have enough such mm -hmm. that I can do the things that matter to me and I think by doing the things that matter to me I'm playing a very cool game sure so I can't lose nobody I'm not competing against anyone right right the only game is to stay on my track and keep playing the game right um, winning the game would look like, oh, I want to make a million dollars a year. The problem is then what? Right, right. You well, have to ramp up the goal or come up with a deeper commitment. Sure. Well, and also if, if we know anything about psychology, it's that you know, a lot of times when we, when we achieve those goals, the hedonic treadmill, you know, kicks in and, and it says once you get 1 million, it's like, well, why not a million and a half or, or two or well, they can be fine, right? Goals can yeah. be fine. And a lot of people are wired like that. I'm fine with more ambiguity than most people. The problem is a lot of times what people are picking is just commonly accepted goals that will right. get them the most status or approval. Mm -hmm. yep. And they're not their own goals. Right. right. This is, And it took me a while to realize this, that, okay, I'm like nine years into consulting now. I am now surrounded by people who really care about status and really care yeah. about being a partner at a firm or something, or like hanging out with successful CEOs. I was not that person. Yep. But it, it was harder to know that when I was younger. And it was very easy when I'm 23 to think, oh, I'll just climb the ladder at a consulting firm. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I had a very similar experience. And it really did really take myself having the, asking myself the tough questions of, 
really being honest of when you look at that, those individuals, I mean, it's great that that's the life they've chosen. And if that's what they want, that's great. But do you see yourself actually wanting that? And do you see yourself being okay with the calculus of what they have to give up in order to get what they get in return? And if that's not something that's going to, was going to work for me, then it would make a lot of sense for me to not go that route because uh, there's nothing worse than playing a game that, that works for someone else's calculus, but not your own. And that was a big motivator for some of the career decisions that I made was when I realized some of that, that given that get just was not going to work for me. And that's not a judgment on anyone else's choices, but just having the ability and the fortitude to kind of say, no, that's actually not going to work for me. And, and I just, I need to find another place where my own calculus will work. Yeah. Another thing I've realized is just talking to hundreds of people mm -hmm. um, about work is there's a wide range of desires, yeah. psychological makeup. Mm -hmm. comfort yeah. and discomfort with insecure like uncertainty um and it's really easy to assume we're all very similar especially when you're around people on similar paths right and i think the thing for me was i realized how much i valued freedom and autonomy over my work mm -hmm. and freedom over my time yeah that was so valuable to me and right. like it it's one thing to leave a path, but um, you may actually value some of the things on that path that make a lot of, the, that are really important for you, right? The thing is like, I don't think most people should leave traditional work jobs unless mm -hmm. they're ready for like an existential crisis. Yeah. Because if you're going to leave a job, there's a chance people are just going to not give a shit about you anymore. Right. Yeah. Like, so all of a sudden you're like, oh, that's your job. That's so great. You're, you're my successful son or you're my successful nephew or you're my, right. you're the cool, you're the smart cousin that always succeeds. And all of a sudden you don't have an explanation for what you're doing mm -hmm. and it feels so terrible. Yeah. And like, that was me at the beginning of my journey, like just struggling. Like I wanted to explain it to people. I couldn't, I got defensive. It was hard. It was just really hard, but deep down I knew, okay, this is something worth exploring. And like, I can't explain why, but it, it matters. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So speaking of things that matter, um, uh, one of the things I wanted to ask you about is, is this concept of, of meaning and finding meaning and real closely related to that is you write about Ikigai, which certainly gets a lot of, uh, a lot of traction and buzz. Uh, uh I think it's well-intentioned, but I think it's also misunderstood. And I think you did a really good job in the book walking through the history of it, but also it, what it really actually means. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Because it, it is definitely something that is top of mind to a lot of people who want to have good careers, but it would be great to have someone talk through what it actually means and how we should, you know, potentially be really thinking about this. What was your relationship to the concept before you read it in my book? So my relationship with the concept was, it was, kind of like, uh, to be truthfully honest, I thought a lot about, I don't know if you've ever seen those diagrams of design thinking, right? Where it's like feasibility, viability, and usability um, and finding the sweet spot. And so yeah. the, the, the biggest, my biggest under kind of representation of it was very similar to that in terms of Ikigai was the thing very much like design thinking, where you're trying to find the sweet spot uh, between a whole bunch of different things. And I think the, the biggest takeaway that I took away from it originally was that, um, yeah, like in a perfect world, everyone would be able to do all the things that they wanted to do. 
without abandon and without any constraints, but we don't live in a perfect world. So you probably right. do something that yes, like you do enjoy, but that also actually pays you because, um, and that you actually have a shot at doing because like, yeah, I would love to be an astronaut, but I'm never going to be, <laughs> you know, like no one's ever going to pay me to be an astronaut. So it was more of like, oh, this is a useful mental model to think about, um, what, what, I, what I could be doing that is like interesting, but also that can, you know, help me get paid. Yeah. These ideas of meaningful work that like our work has to be meaningful and it, we can find these dream jobs. I think they're a little bit illusory and they trick us into thinking that within this narrow container, we call a job that's done 50 weeks of the year for a company, we can find everything we need. Right. And I don't think there's anything wrong if you're able to, if you do want to search for like the combo of all those things, money, meaning, uh, having an impact, all those things. But I don't know. I, I don't buy it. Like, I think, I think one, it's a bad frame of reference. I think two, it's not actually tied to the real meaning of the word, um, from Japanese, which is essentially reason for being. Right. And knowing like Eastern traditions, that's very much like an accepting the flow of the world, the Tao, uh, things like that, rather than, um, oh, we just need to find our dream job and like monetize right. our passions. It, it leads right. a lot of people into false things. And yeah, um, if you look in the history of it, it's basically this random chart that somebody created around purpose in Spanish. And then uh, American blogger or British blogger basically swapped out purpose for guy, and then added some color and then published it and then it just went viral yeah um but it's not a japanese conception of it at, at all i don't think i've talked to friends in japan and they're like no nobody really like uses that um diagram but so w what's the answer then right um, yeah. what do you do instead of searching for like a dream job or like trying to monetize your passion i i think like my pitch to people, which is not a playbook, it's not follow my path. It's more like, hey, here's my shift. My shift was seeing work as something that is a job that's paid for towards work of your life is like finding the things worth committing to, finding those things, those infinite games that you want to play Yep, and being willing to pay the price for them. So seeing reality as it is and seeing like, okay, I love writing. There's two paths here. One is to like try and monetize it. By trying to monetize it, I'll probably lose some joy of doing it. So right. how about if I just monetize other stuff and create the space in my life such that I can keep doing the writing and see where the writing leads? Um, yeah, and I've probably made like less than $10,000 from writing in five years. Um, could that go up in the future? Maybe, but I don't know. I'm not like banking on it. Sure. It's not something I'm going to stop doing, though. Yep. Yep. So what I wanted to actually do now is I have a few quotes in the book that stuck out, and I just want to read them and then have you maybe share what your thought process or go deeper on them. Uh, the first one is, we like to think that once we make it, we can finally be ourselves. But based on who the company selected, it was clear that the longer people stayed at the company, the higher the odds they would become what the company wanted. Yeah, so... I mean, I think you, most young people hit a point when they realize this. Um, and it's, 
the higher you get in an organization, the people that get promoted are much more incentivized and nudged by the norms and the culture of the organization than they'd like to admit. Occasionally, you get the rare person that transcends that and is like this, typically these beloved leaders that just have some psychological makeup that they're able to deal with it all and still be their authentic leadership self. Um, Yeah, and I just saw it over and over again. People say, people have this idea, once I make it, I can then implement changes and do things I want. What's more likely to happen is you'll become more like your peers and more like the environment wants you to be. Um, Watch a group. This happens very noticeably with lawyers and accountants. They're surrounded by only lawyers and accountants, and they start only seeing the world as possible through what a lawyer and accountant can do. And like a lawyer, for example, um, they're paid to find flaws in things. Um, That's going to change you as a person. If your entire job is you're incentivized to find flaws all the time, you're going to find flaws everywhere in life. Um, And so asking deeper questions, what does the environment want of me? Um, That's kind of my thinking. And now I'm able to design my environment so I can control who I become a little more. Sure. And I certainly can see how, you know, being on your path's path allows you to set those own metrics versus having to necessarily worry about or think about ones that are maybe set by an organization, um, which are not always within your control. Um, The second one I had for you, and really focusing on the last part of this one, uh, but these people became my friends and I started to want what they wanted. They embodied a success ethic that focused on maximizing successful achievements in the present to create better options in the future. Particularly around that, like maximizing in the present for the future. Yeah. Yeah. It's this broader career identity. It's a careerism uh, where you start to see yourself as a person on a trajectory or a path. Right. And the game is always to do things in the present that prove that you're worthy of access to future, to things in the future. Right. In college, you know you need to get a high GPA if you're going to apply to grad school a few years later, right? You want to maximize your test scores so you can get into school. When you're in school, you want to compete for awards so you'll stand out and try to get jobs later. In jobs, you want to perform so you build your network and people will vouch for you in future jobs. So there's constant pressure to live in your head in the future, but in the, in the present, really worry about that future too. So you're kind of stealing um, the present from you to constantly live in that future. Um, and I took to that pretty strongly when I was young. Uh, I saw life as kind of a game and Paul Graham likes to call them like bad tests, right? Um, they get you to do things that you think matter. Um, what mattered at the end of the day basically developing skills, learning how to grow up, learning how to be mature, learning how to like do really well on a test, not going to help you much in life, but you can trick yourself into thinking life is mostly that. Absolutely. Um, the, the subtitle of your book is imagining a new story for, for work and life. And why is it important for us to really understand our stories about work and life. And I've really tried to make this, this conversation really about you reflecting back, but if we could maybe just do one little itty bitty bit of recommendations, um, maybe, uh, because you've gone through this, 
uh, if our listeners out there do buy into what you're saying in terms of imagining a new story for work and life, how can they actually go about and, and do some of this work? You know, what are maybe a couple of steps they could maybe take? So this is why I wrote my book. My book's yeah. an easy read. And if you don't want to pay for it, just email me and I'll send it to you. Uh, so, so there's the plug for my book. Um, I want to help people um, come up with different ideas and inspiration for, to remix their paths. Um, yeah. I mean, what do you think of the subtitle? I, I played around with so many versions, but I realized at the end of the day, I wanted to help people imagine new possibilities. That's the part that stuck about it. There's two things that stuck out about it to me. Um, the first part is it is acknowledging both work and life, right? Because both are, they're related. They're separate, but related, right? It's hard to really, and I don't want to make this a conversation about work-life balance or anything like that, but like it's, you know, how you show up in your work is is also going to be a reflection of what's going on in your life and, and, and vice versa, right? And so that was the first thing that stuck out is that it's it's imagining, but also for for thinking about it in a much broader context than just your your job. Um, but also, I do I do like the word imagining because to some of the things that you had mentioned, I I and I've definitely been guilty of this for myself. But sometimes I have gotten myopic in the past about potential paths, and as a result of that, drawn a lot of anxiety personally around. Well, if that's the path, and that's not what I want. Or if I don't think I can do that, then I'm screwed. And it's like, okay, or you can maybe think about what if there's alternative paths. And so what I liked about it is that it's giving people permission to just think and expand their thought around, well, what if it could look different, right? And it's interesting. I was listening to another podcast the other day, just on the topic of, of this concept of, of self-compassion. Um, I've been doing a little bit yeah. more recently around this just because I have a tendency to be overly critical of myself. And the, uh, the, the, the woman on the podcast, she was describing self-compassion as this concept of reparenting almost. And what the, 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 the analogy I'm trying to draw is that what I like about a new story for work and life is that sometimes you have really, I, I'm really fortunate that I was raised with a good set of values and beliefs, but sometimes they don't always serve you in the same ways as they did when you first learned them. And so what right. really stuck out to me was just this idea that it's okay to revisit those and reimagine what this could look like in a new way. And I just don't think we always give ourselves permission for a lot of reasons to go and do that. Yeah, I think that resonates, right? We have all these scripts and stories loaded yeah. into our brains that we're running. Uh, and so many things are tied with work. Work connects with uh, morality. Mm -hmm. like, who we think do, is doing their part, whether somebody's a good person, whether they're seen as successful, respectable. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like people have a hard time if you don't just do work every day. What are you doing? You're just so wandering around, you're wasting your life. Or, um, and I, I think what I was trying to get at is uh, these stories we have about work are very, very limited. It's basically mm -hmm. like work. Yeah. Do stuff, make money if you can. <laughs> Yeah. Um, but there's no deeper like narrative for how we should think about navigating our life. Yeah. Yeah. Like, what do we do when we hit a roadblock? What do we do when we've done three career changes and we're still stuck? Yeah. Right. Like you run out of advice really fast. Most people will tell you to do the safe thing or the more profitable thing. Right. Um, and for a lot of people that doesn't really resonate with them, they have this sense that there must be something more. Work has like dominated 
our conception of what we think life is. We now think life of, of as like basically work and then we make decisions around that. It's like people used to take um, wagons across the country for months. I was thinking about this the other day. And now you talk to young people and they're like, oh, I can't move to another city. I need to find another job first. It's like there's just such a lack of imagination and so many um, constraints we're creating for ourselves um, that I wanted to help people kind of step step aside of the prison they think's a prison, but it's really just the metal bars in front of them and there's nothing on the sides. You can just walk around. Uh, yeah. But, yeah. But yeah, yeah. Um, new story and... Yeah, it's really about shifting and seeing work as something you do in a job for a paycheck towards something that matters to you that you want to keep doing and then fighting for that to make it happen within the re reality of how the world actually works. So one of the quotes that spoke to me that I think aligns with this idea of imagining a new story for work and life is, I, I think you wrote, in Aristotle's world, the more contemplation, the more happiness that there is in life. And one of my takeaways, at least from the book, was that now's as good as the time as ever to just start contemplating what that shift could be for you if you did start to think about a job of as things worth investing your time in versus just um, a paycheck. And obviously, you know, we all have our own worlds and realities that we live in. And, you know, there's a certain, I know for me, the path that I've taken, there's a certain amount of privilege that comes with that. But it does give people, I, I, what I took away from the book is that it does give people some permission to, to think more broadly um, about what else could be out there and at least putting some thought and intention behind it. Um, and um, I'm a byproduct of 10 years of Jesuit education. So this idea of intentional reflection, I think, just yeah. kind of spoke to me. That's a beautiful tradition. Yeah, it is. Well, Paul, uh, thank you so much for coming on the MBA Insider podcast today. Uh, for sharing your story and talking a little bit about uh, your just published book, uh, The Pathless Path. Um, congratulations. Um, if people want to buy the book or find you online, where can they go? Where can they find you? Uh, think-boundless.com or just search The Pathless Path Paul on Amazon or P underscore Millard on Twitter. Pretty, uh, pretty available. Always down to talk about these things. And I think my message really is for people to... I'm not writing for the people like, don't you think you can't do this because of X, Y, and Z? I'm writing for the the weirdos all around the world, all different financial circumstances, all different family situations that reach out to me, just like you, Al, that are like, there's got to be more. Like, I'm writing for those people. So if I'm speaking to you, like, go check out my book. And like I said, I'll uh, give you a copy for free if money's tight. Hi, everyone. LD here. And thank you so much for listening to the MBA Insider Podcast. If you liked what you heard, make sure to head over to Apple Podcasts and to write a review. It will only take 15 seconds. I'd also love to hear what you've been listening to on the podcast and any suggestions you have for how we can improve. Find me on LinkedIn or head over to mbaschooled.com backslash podcast.